How can we reimagine a world without plastic? How can we push governments and companies to admit what they know about the health impacts of plastics and change public policy? Kathleen Rogers is the president of EarthDay.org, which has grown into a global year-round policy and activist organization with an international staff. She has been at the vanguard of developing campaigns and programs focused on diversifying the environmental movement. Kathleen has previously held senior positions with the National Audubon Society, the Environmental Law Institute, and two U.S. Olympic organizing committees. Their theme, Planet vs. Plastics, calls to advocate for widespread awareness on the health risk of plastics, rapidly phase out all single-use plastics, urgently push for strong UN treaty on plastic pollution, and to demand to end fast fashion. Join us as we build a plastic-free planet for generations to come. Kathleen Rogers, welcome to One Planet Podcast and the Creative Process. Thank you for having me. So as you know, climate change is no longer something to be explained. It's already here. And this January was the eighth month in a row that I believe average air temperatures across land and sea have topped all records. So we know the principal driver of this is no mystery, the burning of fossil fuels, deforestation, and other human activities that has driven heat steadily upward for more than a century. Uh, with EarthDay.org, with over 1 billion people participating in activities annually, you're a major force in the environmental movement. How does Earth Day plan to leverage this vast network to push for systemic changes in policies and practices related to plastic production and consumption? I think that's an excellent question. Just to give you sort of where we are, a picture on the ground. If you can imagine, um, and, and this is my personal view, but I think probably a lot of people in my movement share it. When I think of the European Union, for example, I think of them because they are so much further ahead than the U.S. on environmental protection. And that means they are much more worried about chemicals that reach people's bodies than the U.S. is. And we test very few. They're much further ahead than we are on a lot of pieces in the climate puzzle. But one interesting thing, and it goes to the question of what is Earth Day doing to build this groundswell, is a couple of different surveys in the EU indicated strongly that somewhere between 60 and 85 percent of the people in the EU did not know that plastics comes from oil. So in answer to your question, one of the things, in order to build a groundswell, you first have to start with education. And so for us, and this is our Planet versus Plastics campaign, which is our theme for 2024, is very much focused on three different pieces, the first of which is education. Because if you're starting with that number of people not really understanding how it's made, where it comes from, because once they figure that out, it becomes much more obvious what the problem is. But that's a long road ahead of us because it's a big planet. And so our focus for Earth Day is sort of threefold. One is broad-based education of people about the nature and issues with plastic and where it comes from. The second are the health impacts of plastics. And we can get back to that if you'd like. And the third is that we have an opportunity because the world is in the process of negotiating a treaty on plastics to make sure that health is actually included, the health impacts of plastics is included in that treaty. And even that is a steep hill to climb because the interests, including the U.S., I'm sad to say, U.S. interests are not aligned with the EU, not aligned with public health officials not aligned at all because we're an oil producer and a plastic producer. And many countries, as you can imagine, those oil producing countries are seriously opposed to including health and some of the other 
provisions that we've been arguing for in this treaty. So that's a third piece of the puzzle. So it's broad-based education. It's promoting and, and pushing governments and companies to admit what they know about the health impacts of plastics, and then to have those have those health components be part of the treaty. And of course, our goal is to reduce production by 60% by 2040. It's another hill to climb, but we deeply believe that plastic, as practical as it has been, is really, it's time for it to go. And yes, and just go into the the health aspects and also the plausible alternatives in terms of uh, eliminating plastics. Yeah, and I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but I have a lot of friends in the industry. Once you live and work in Washington, D.C., you sort of meet everyone. The lobbyists live down the street and the environmentalists live next door, whatever. And so Washington's a company town in that regard. I think the way I'd answer the question of on the health is to start by talking about what we know from history and whether it's tobacco or climate change or the role of chemicals in Roundup. We all know from a long history of working in this movement that companies, even governments, lie, hide, conceal, obfuscate data that they collect about a particular product or chemicals that they're making. And so we have literally histories littered with dozens of stories and court cases of malfeasance where companies knew for years before we did, the public, about impacts. And climate change is a perfect one um, because we know Exxon scientists knew in 1957 that burning fossil fuels was creating climate change and that eventually the temperature of the planet would heat up and they hid it from us for 50 plus years. And more and more reports are coming out every day about what companies, and again, as I said, some governments know. And tobacco, it's not in the environmental world necessarily, but the tobacco companies knew tobacco caused cancer for decades before our scientists did. And so we have the same problem with plastics. What Earth Day is, is a broad education. Yes, we get involved in lobbying or litigation occasionally and rulemaking and regulations and support them. But we do a whole lot of education. And what we're seeing, and so one of the things we did for this Earth Day, and we published it about a month ago called Babies Versus Plastics, is a collection of studies around the impacts on our health. And we particularly focused on babies and children because as they grow, their bodies and brains are more impacted by chemicals than full-grown adults, from mental health to brain development, you name it, they're impacted by the 30,000 chemicals that assault us every day. Well, we started looking at the research, and we know one thing about scientists, and that is they don't waste time. They are there, and their entire lives are caught up, most scientists, the vast majority of scientists, in proving something that they're studying. They're not there to waste time. They wouldn't get grants if they were doing projects that weren't critically important. Governments, not-for-profits, foundations are pouring money and have been actually for the last 10 years, but we're starting to see the results of that into the research of plastics in our bodies. We knew plastics polluted the ocean. We knew our wildlife was drowning and eating it and that we were eating it. But now we can actually see visually how microplastics and nanoplastics are entering our bloodstream, are sticking to our major organs. And from Alzheimer's to autism, there's a causation issue, there's a link issue, all of which, tragically for us, because there's so much plastic in the world, is increasingly looking like it is not just detrimental to our human health, but deadly to our health. 
And so Earth Day is collecting that data. Again, we're not a research organization, but we're collecting data from all over the world on the impacts of plastic. And the jury is in. There is so much damaging data. And so we're deeply involved in educating people about the data, connecting the links between plastics and actual diseases through these studies that we're not producing, just reading and assessing. But we're also moving increasingly towards what many organizations did to the tobacco industry, which is demanding that the plastics industry, the oil producing industry, tell us what they know. Because if there's anything I know about the history of chemical production and tobacco and climate change is that companies are way ahead of us. They're always looking down the road for what kind of impediments there could be to making money from their product. So they often study outcomes and impacts of their products, chemicals, et cetera, long before federal governments get involved or individual research agencies or universities. But now we're seeing this info pour in from around the world. So we're beginning a long process, along with many other groups, of making sure that industry come clean and tell us what they know about the impacts of plastics on human health. And so you're calling for the United Nations Environmental Program to formally recognize the health implications of exposure to microplastics in the Global Plastic Treaty. How optimistic are you about these recommendations being adopted? Well, the interesting thing about media and communications in general, though I'm sure we'd all have a lot to say about how bad it is for all of us, our children and everything else, and for how we all get along. It's an extraordinarily damaging thing. The good side of all this communication and the availability of data is that we know exactly who the bad players and bad actors are. And industry has, they don't have a foot in the door. They have their entire bodies and legions of bodies in the door actively negotiating against any inclusion of of many pieces of the plastic treaty from reduction in production to outlawing single-use plastic to requiring what we call the cautionary principle, uh, which is well known in the law, which is you really should not put anything in the open market that you're not 100% sure is not going to affect human health or health of any species on the planet. And so we have not only the U.S. negotiating against the EU and the rest of the world, but we have all the oil producing countries actively negotiating. And then there's the oil industry, the U.S. government, and a bunch of other oil producing countries all on one side of the room. And so I think we're beginning a period before we see true progress and a banning of plastics altogether. Now, don't get me wrong. In the medical field, plastics has been incredibly helpful. They used to use glass or some other kind of piping, all sorts of things that plastic has made it much easier in the medical field. However, anytime plastic heats up at all, nanoparticles are going into your bloodstream. And whether it's our food or the air we breathe or medical instruments, et cetera, et cetera, and there's a giant list, it's accumulating in our brain. There's one study about Alzheimer's that shows the extraordinary imaging of brains that the person may have been developing Alzheimer's for some other reason, but their sections of their brain are just coated in plastic. And so the impacts, the progression of disease, all of these things, we still haven't hit the mark. So I don't want to say we've proved definitively that plastic is killing all of us. The studies are getting very scarily close to that. And so we're demanding the plastic industry tell us what they know. Eventually, they're going to have to. But pushing the U.S. government, my own government, to go out in the right direction has been incredibly difficult. And 
on that tab, we're not making a lot of progress. Yes. And of course, we've been focusing on human health, but you know the statistics, of course, for marine life and the welfare of the ocean, only 1% of marine litter floats. Everything else sinks to the seafloor. And there's now, I think, around 5.25 trillion pieces of plastic in our ocean. And I, I think the sad thing about human beings is looking down the road has not been one of our species' major objectives in life. We do plan ahead, but I think in general, there was this sense, oh, it's in our oceans. It's far away from most people. It's in our species. Isn't that terrible that a turtle has a circle of plastic around its neck? But understanding that what goes on in the oceans not only impacts climate change and water quality, but that we eat it and that hundreds of millions, billions of people are eating fish and other things, seaweed, et cetera, et cetera, from the ocean. So bringing it home to us, even to me, I mean, I'm a, an environmentalist, but I'm quite inadequate in many ways. I drive my car more than I should. Sure, I have plenty of plastic around my house, although we keep replacing everything with as much as we can, but it's like too little too late. And what I think the goal is to educate people that they have a voice, that they need to stop using it. They need to send a message to industry, which always responds to consumers' demands. That's just how things work. They want to sell stuff. And while we don't have many solutions right now to plastic, the scary part is that we're deeply concerned that as new products, new processes come online, that the oil and plastics industry are just going to buy them up and put them in a closet somewhere. Because as we stop using as much oil as we have in the past, theoretically, and over the next couple of decades, I don't think it's going to happen sooner than, than you know, another 20 years. That oil and those countries that live on that oil are going to have to put it somewhere else. And so they have already planned and most of the big oil companies have announced that a lot of their growth in the coming decades will be from plastics production because Otherwise, they'll go out of business. They need to move it into a different industry. So it's very hard to see an end to this right away. But I do think it will take a few decades before the world recognizes that plastics has imperiled our future. There are many environmentalists, myself included, that view plastics on par with, if not worse, than climate change. Because we do see a little teeny light at the end of the tunnel. On climate change, there's general awareness, but plastics were starting, it feels like, you know, decades before we'll have enough evidence and alternatives, because that's important. We got to have an alternative to this because it's also in our clothes. 75, 80% of our clothes are made from oil. And that has repercussions on labor and jobs. And this is a giant topic. Unfortunately, it's a really serious one and it's serious for our children. And will be more serious for their children because it's impacting reproduction, sperm counts, cancer, heart disease. It's everywhere we're seeing massive money going into studies on the impacts of plastics. Those people are not wasting those dollars or their time. And increasingly, we're seeing reports that are just about to say exactly what we suspect, that plastic is dramatically impacting human health, along with the other chemicals that we're bombarded with, but many of them are part of the plastics industry. Indeed. And you have great toolkits and, as you say, educational initiatives around this where people can inform themselves. As you know, recently that the planet spent a full year above 1.5 degrees on the pre-industrial average. 
when we're seeing like, you know, in Iceland now losing around 10 billion tons of ice each year. So Iceland could be iceless by 2,200. You know, how are we going to cope with a two degree world? Well, wealthier countries will cope. I think it's going to be extremely complicated for many different people. We have a building in DuPont Circle in Washington, D.C. And downstairs from us is an international migration organization. They're really great. We're on the elevator a lot together. And sometimes I get off and go in and talk to people. And we have so much in common, the environmental and migration organizations, because we know that the great migration will begin as climate change gets worse because people are already on the move as a result of climate change. So coping is an interesting word because the way people in water-deprived, drought-stricken countries will cope will be to die or to go north or south or depending on where they are geographically. And so you will see maybe upwards of 30% of the world's current population forced to move and relocate. And that can only mean that whether a wealthy country like the U.S. or Europe is, could cope with extreme heat or drought through miracles and technology, how are they going to cope with an influx of hundreds of millions of people? That's one thing. The second thing is what happens to the people who can't move or assume in some sort of sci-fi or futuristic movie, we've all built walls that are insurmountable to protect us from the hundreds of millions of people who don't have water or food. And again, I'm not talking tomorrow, but I'm talking soon. And again, the migration has already begun. It's incredibly difficult in many countries to grow food and get drinking water and people have no choice. So, you know, some people, Americans and others think we'll be able to cope by invention, by using money, by finding alternatives. But on the migration issue, that's going to be a really tough one to cope with. So I think I'd probably use the word survive rather than cope because it depends. If you're in the East Coast of the United States, for example, just we get plenty of rain. And so it never occurs to us that we won't have plenty of rain. But if you're looking down what the predictions are, well, we won't have that much rain. Or if we do, it'll come in unmanageable amounts. California will be going through, and thankfully we've had two years in a row of rain, but many countries around the world are already experiencing incredibly bad weather. And by that, I'm not talking about small storms, but devastating storms. You see this in the insurance industry a lot, where they're constantly meeting to figure out how to continue to insure people against climate change. About 12 or 12, 13 years ago, for some reason, a group of insurance companies came to Earth Day and gave us an award for communicating on climate change. And I told them in my speech accepting the award that we were in the exact same business, insurance companies and environmentalists. We are managing risk. They're managing risk so they can make money. We're managing risk so we can save the planet. But in any event, we're in the very same business. And my words, and many of us shared those words, it wasn't as if I was the first person to think of it, came tragically true insurance companies, and we are constantly working together and trying to figure out what is the risk of climate change? How do you protect people from loss and damage? What do we do with the rest of the world, which doesn't have insurance, but is vital to even national interests, whether it's mining or timber or growing food that we don't? How do we manage that process and ensure that, depending on where your allegiance lies, how do we protect the United States from and continue to be able to import products that are 
not likely to be around in 10 years because of climate change, because we are not alone anymore. We're all connected through trade, communications, travel, et cetera. And of course, climate change is everywhere. So I think the human species will certainly survive. Necessity is the mother of invention, and we certainly have that necessity. But I do think there'll be periods of time in the next 10 to 20 years where things will be bleak. But I do feel that there's so much green technology and so much money to be made in saving the planet, although the distribution of that income is already stunningly unfair. It's all coming from the North. None of it will get to the South unless they buy it. So I think the inequities will grow. I can't predict how much or how that will impact the United States or other super developed countries. But I do suspect that political systems will change, immigration will change, priorities will change. And I have kids and I don't want any of this to be true. I want it all to go away, but it's not. And I spend a lot of time talking to people, as I said, whose job it is to analyze risk and then predict the future. And when they start getting worried, these futurists, that's what makes me really nervous. Yes. It's all about, you know, preparing for that risk. And we hear about future-ready cities. We're living in the century of the city, and the cities are the main drivers of creativity and innovation and consuming 70% roughly of the world's natural resources and account for over 70% of global carbon dioxide emissions. But many people don't know about climate disruption, energy transport, when a water, air, waste, the future of education and jobs. So for you, what is your vision for cities of tomorrow? Well, again, it's impossible to have a closed system, right? Because there is always going to be urban, suburban, rural need. There, there just is. Land, unless we're growing our food vertically and we eliminate meat entirely from our diets, which probably would be a good idea. And there are a lot of visionaries who talk about skyscrapers to produce all of our vegetables in urban areas. But until that becomes a reality, there is this interdependence of all of these different geographic locations. And so while you're 100% right that at a certain point, the vast majority of people will be living in and around cities, vast areas of land will probably be needed to feed humans. So I think there's so many creative ideas to incredible technologies. And so again, I think cities have to be, Tom, more equity is a major component. In most major cities in the U.S. and even in Europe, but less so there, but even in China, there are rings around cities, right? And poor people continually get pushed out because there's so many people with money that are coming into cities. Washington is a perfect example where half the city was poor and the other half, Northwest, was the wealthy area and Southeast and Southwest were super poor. And they were our lowest income residents. This is from the early 1900s till recently. But as more and more people came to D.C., they pushed the poor people further and further out of the cities and took more and more of the poor people's lands and built luxury condominiums. So the, this definition of city is going to have to change because if there are all these wealthy people living and earning money and want to be close to the city center, then where are the people who don't earn the money and don't have as much income going to live? And so they're going to be pushed in, pushed further and further away from the core, which makes their commutes longer, their lives more difficult, harder to get services, medicine, whatever it is. And so the definition of a city is going to have to change. And in order to do that, we're going to have to address the issue of where the people live, how they earn money, how long it takes them to get to work, 
Are they, do they have trees on their way in as they're walking to the subway? All of these important issues because poor people are going to have to commute longer and longer distances unless cities get their act together and build equity housing and distribute those people who are earning less than others among us. It's not just an equity, it's practical and is overall better for the economy of the city. So what you're going to do with the masses of people that are gravitating towards cities, it's already a problem. It's a huge problem in China. If you've been there, it's just, there are, I don't know, eight ring roads around Beijing where you further and further out from the center and you still have millions of people living there. And so you have to address the issue of how many people can, will a city include and how do you incorporate or build smaller cities where industry and food and water can be distributed in a way without ruining what we've got left of the land. So I've seen diagrams, descriptions, surveys of what the cities of the future look like. It's hard to predict what they're going to be like. I mean, the United States is lucky. We have a lot of room, but other countries have less. India is a perfect example. But they still have massive, I think probably 40 50% of their population is still rural, but that's changing. India's on the rise. You know, everything is so dynamic right now that it's hard to predict what a city would look like. But I have seen futurist cities where 100% of the food and water is produced inside the city limits. These are ideas, some of which are in production. So that can happen. But then what do you do with the rest of the people? Because we don't expect population to peak for many years. But that will also govern what our cities look like. So it's a really complex. And if you stay positive about it, it's really exciting what we're seeing in terms of how to accommodate mass numbers of people who are desperate to be close to where they work. Hi, I'm Mia Pardini, a student at the University of Washington studying environmental studies and climate science. What I appreciated about this conversation was Roger's honesty. As someone who's contributed so much to environmental progress, I look up to her and her commitment to environmentalism. In this interview, I found that she was educational, but also really transparent about her own faults. She is not perfect, as she stated that she frequently uses plastic and produces more waste than she should, particularly through her car. And this perspective is very important to me as it makes me realize that it's almost impossible to be 100% sustainable in a world that's been so industrialized for so long. And it's especially difficult when people without money have to approach climate impacts, as eco-friendly items are significantly more expensive. And as a college student, I understand firsthand how much money it actually costs to be super sustainable. And when people are just trying to get by, it's not on the forefront of their minds. And as a student in the environmental field, I've made attempts at educating people through clubs and other types of student activities. It can often be hard to stay motivated to continue pursuing this field, as there seems to be negative things happening to the earth all the time. And as a leading environmentalist, Kathleen Rogers actually provides an insightful perspective onto what we can do to help, specifically how her organization is approaching climate change through addressing the disproportionate impacts on lower income countries, and most importantly, education. Education is at the heart of Earth Day, and I believe that is the route to having actual progress made. For example, I was educated by this interview as I actually didn't really know that plastics came from oil, which definitely interlinks the fossil fuel and plastic production industry. Earth Day has also made commitments to diverse education by providing it in multiple languages, particularly in their Planet versus Plastics campaign. This campaign is particularly important in my opinion as everyone on the planet has been subject to single-use plastics, and it's an industry that is so widespread that it's honestly very difficult to make any progress without various action from the UN and other intergovernmental organizations. Similarly to Kathleen, I have been guilty of using these single-use plastics frequently, not taking the extra effort as I thought it would be a cost to my own convenience. 
This campaign has taught me that plastic is beyond just us, and we have to take action urgently. Educating people is the best way to get people invested in making progress and getting involved. Now back to the interview. One thing we haven't talked about, the impact of AI on how we live and how we burn energy, it has enormous potential and it's also kind of scary, as we all know. But I do see a lot of the potential urban planners really working with AI, which is still rudimentary right now. I mean, it'll explode over the next five to 10 years. And that will also impact how and where we live in a way that I think none of us quite yet imagine. Indeed. And on that note, you were mentioning, of course, uh, vertical farming and uh, also the, the converse of that regenerative agriculture. And that we see that with AI, it's also there's a number of restoration projects. You know, so there's that positive element. And then, of course, the critics, because these um, open AI and these different AI companies have not quite been transparent about how much energy their systems consume. Yeah, and we're just beginning to see those impacts. It's so cutting edge. It's so new, but it's also exploding that I don't think anybody's getting a handle on the good parts and the bad parts yet. There are a lot of people on both sides of the issue talking about how great it is, how bad it is, its impact on energy, its impact on jobs. And the jobs thing, I think, for me, is the most troubling because if, you know, read any of the great sort of science fiction writers from 20s, 30s, 40s, they all predicted AI and they predicted a society where AI would be so super efficient that no one would have to work. And those sci-fi writers, many of which we read in high school and others, people read them all the time. And it's a lot of it's coming true. But I, I do think humans were made to work is not the word expression I really want to use. It's we're so smart and we're so capable that I can't imagine a world and I don't want to imagine a world where people who are smart, who are innovative, who are entrepreneurs, who will be unable to put those skills to work because they'll be put out of business by AI. It is too too soon, I think, to say that will likely be true. But if you do read futurists on the subject, it predicts a world where the vast majority of people won't work. Now, whether that means they won't work and they'll starve to death or whether it means that AI will be so efficient that they'll be able to live and just, I don't know, play tennis. I am worried about human endeavors and productivity and our intellects and how they will shape the future versus a machine learning tool and that eventually will think it's smarter than we are. And so all of those dynamics will have a huge impact on the environment, on people, on values. And we need to start looking at it right now from an environmental perspective, from a human being perspective. And we need to have a lot of humility about what this very dangerous but incredible opportunity is to have artificial intelligence solve some of the big problems we have like cancer or climate change or water distribution. So it's, I think it's an incredibly important time. I can't imagine how 20-year-olds feel. Some of them are going into the field with huge excitement. Others are worried that there, there won't be room for psychologists or philosophers or poets because it'll all be generated somewhere else. And so I think all of those things need to be discussed, debated, controlled, but put the best parts of AI to work because I think that's 
the unanticipated future that we need to get a hold of right now. Indeed. And it goes to that governance and transparency as well that we've seen, like what you're talking about with plastics or things, just being open about our objections and needs are and putting that in place because this is the, the current technology and we have to make sure it doesn't get out ahead of us. Because I think that these issues are, you know, hugely important. You do talk about reskilling for 2030 and beyond. What do you think we need to do? Well, education is what Earth Day does. We do other things, but education's at our core. And one of the big things we've been pushing is climate literacy. And we aren't just pushing climate literacy on the science. That's at the bottom of where we begin. That's the baseline. But what we really care about is putting, as I said before, human beings to work on all of our problems. And because climate change is just so big, whether it impacts everything from our psychology to our physical health, to the way we travel, the way we see the world and what's left of it. That's one of the great tragedies is, you know, species extinction. And all of those things need to be part of our education, not because the negative part of it is not the most important part for me at all. For me, it climate change, not plastics, but climate change, it could be one of the greatest things, to use an expression, since sliced bread. It gives us a chance to reimagine the world in a way that every single human being can participate in. And so whether you're in a remote part of the United States or some other country, when you learn about climate change, it shouldn't just be the science. It should be the opportunity. And the second part of Earth Day's big campaign globally is that it's got to be about jobs. So we've joined with, we have over 235 million union members signed on to our global petitions for climate education. We have 65 million teachers signed on, not individually, but as part of their unions and other groups. We have governments left and right now understanding the connection between their ability to participate in the green economy and educating their population now. Again, not just because they want them to know the science of climate change. It's not that hard. You know, you basically built an incredible umbrella around the planet when you burn fossil fuels and it's making the place really hot. And so that's the science, but the opportunity is really important. So we believe that climate education should be in every class. And we're not alone. Countries around the world are jumping in on this because they want to make climate change and all of the possibilities of solving it and creating jobs for the future for their own countries and their own states and their own communities, that they're recognized the connection between climate education, jobs, entrepreneurism, innovation, invention. And that is, it's a really exciting time in an otherwise fairly quiet field education. It's almost always has the lowest budget in every country. But climate change education is beginning to have uh, an impact. Students want it. Teachers want to be competent in it. Companies want climate-educated people because 85% of innovation comes from inside companies, not outside them. And so they want to employ them. And we're going to need artists, architects, psychologists, doctors, and they're all getting into the act. Harvard Medical School is requiring competency in climate change-related diseases because we're seeing changes in the medical field. We're seeing diseases we've never seen before. We're seeing all sorts of things. They want their students, the cream of the crop, to be ready and prepared. And so we're starting to see it in music, architecture, everywhere, psychology, these fields that you wouldn't necessarily think were going to be first in line. You think engineers and other scientists would be, and they are as well. But we're also seeing it in the humanities, in medicine, and other areas where education around climate change and its possibilities, both bad and good, are being explored in curricula. So 
New Jersey even actually does have it in their gym class. I haven't quite figured out how they do it, but it's part of the whole field of both science and creative thinking that's all being wrapped into one. So it's a very exciting time. It's also a matter of resources. Who's going to pay for all this? It's Nobody's actually put a price tag on what it would take to educate every kid in the world on climate change and to make them, to turn them into little innovators and inventors. But that's what needs to happen. So we're in the process of trying to figure out what all this is going to cost. But in the meantime, you know, half a dozen U.S. states are doing this. There are about half a dozen states that won't teach climate change at all. So those states will be left behind because they're just not going to produce the same kind of creative thinkers that states that are on top of this will. That's always been the case when you're in the vanguard and you're afraid of progress. But we're seeing the changes and it's super exciting. And again, it's going to take decades, but we will get there. Yes. And I like that you're introducing into gym classes and making it fun and regaining the, the joy and even artistic and creative expression. You know, how does EarthDay.org tailor its educational materials to different audiences, especially considering the diverse global perspectives on environmental issues? You know, that's a really great question because it's when I first came to Earth Day, I wanted to make sure that all of our lessons and curricula, our toolkits and everything were in multiple languages. And that was great. But little did I know that that I knew so little and that it's not just language, but it's also culture. So you can teach the same subject and reach the same conclusions, whether it's math or science or art or history. But if you don't have it in culturally appropriate ways, then it won't be adopted and accepted. And that was a really hard lesson for me personally and lots of other people over the last 10 or 15, 20 years that are working globally on environmental issues, that you've got to make sure that it's culturally relatable and appropriate because as it turns out, not everybody thinks the way I do. A little lesson that you think I'd have learned when I was very young. But I think as older you get, the more you understand how really differently people think from each other. I mean, we just do. And call it tribal, call it, you know, how your parents raised you, call it faith and those impacts. Whatever it is that makes each of us unique also impacts how we learn and what we think of the way we're learning. So we work really hard. Trust me, very we're not we're very insufficient in this area, but to at least get feedback from people from the cultures and communities where we work to make sure and let them review our materials and toolkits and put what they need to put in them and take what they can out of what we give them and use it the way they see fit because we aren't, as it turns out, as I said, alike in all regards. So that's true whether you're talking about math. You'd think two plus two equals four, but it's the way you teach it and how you teach it that makes the difference. The same is true with climate change, with why should we protect our forests or our species? There are many countries that are way, way ahead of the United States on their belief in the dignity of all species. And nature is protected in ways in other countries that the U.S. cannot even imagine. One of my earliest introductions to this was, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, and we have a pretty big operation in India, and I've been there many times, was there was a tiger that had killed I don't know how many people in this one community. It was a lot. And if you look it up on the internet, it happens all the time in India and some other countries. The first thing we would have done was send out a lynching party to kill that, that animal. We would have been completely diametrically and versibly rejected by the Indian community who saw no reason for that tiger to die. 
it was their own fault, their own lack of judgment to be in a place where a tiger could attack them. And so I was in a village where literally this tiger had attacked many people and their reaction was that it was their own fault and that they would get it together. And if worse came to worse, they'd relocate the tiger, but in no way ever were they going to send out people to hurt it. And I learned so much from that experience because of course we all put human life above, not all of us, but many of us put human life above everything. But there are cultures that don't, not just in India, but many cultures have a much more empathetic, symbiotic, almost space-based relationship with animal species that we don't share in this country. And we've got a lot to learn because it will help us protect our own and see the way we treat animals in this country is really unacceptable. And so I've just found in this job of mine and anybody else who works globally that there's so much to learn from other people and places and ways people think. And in the end, it serves us all to be aware of and absorb some of that. It helps us get along better with other countries and at the end of the day with each other. Yes. And and you've been a great example in terms of not separating yourself from nature and animals. And I was just wondering how your background as an environmental lawyer has helped you stay the course. Well, it's really interesting. You know, I'm one of seven kids and we're all similar. We all love animals. I think Our parents taught us that. We all share a great respect for other species. And so I think some people go into law. I'm just speaking generally. They go into law because they want to make a lot of money or because they like the idea of having power or they just love the principles of law and order because that's all those things are wrapped up in becoming a lawyer. And some people go to law school and come out the other side with both a love of law, but different perspectives and uses of the law. And for me, I started out working in a law firm and it was not a great experience, not because the people weren't nice, some of them anyway, but because that's not what I thought law was about. And I was working for a corporate law firm and supporting corporations and a lot of them were not great and did not have anything but their own self-interest in mind and money. And it just wasn't where my heart was. And so I think you combine a legal degree with, you know, millions of people, there are millions of lawyers, and each of us approaches our profession and our training from different perspectives. And for mine, and it's interesting, I have my sister and brother are both lawyers and, you know, other members of my family do other things. They're in business or whatever. One's an actress, but the three of us are lawyers and all three of us went into public interest law. So we could have all ended up in corporate law. One of us could have done this, but all three of us, my sister's a public defender, my brother's a legislator. And I'm an environmental lawyer. So it's interesting to me that we all went to different law schools and went in for different reasons, but we all came out the same, <laughs> interested in using law for public good. So does it make me better than anybody else? I think it's just who I am. It's other people go into it for different reasons and do other great things with their lives. But in my particular family, a lot of us are in public interest professions. Well, we're so glad that you are who you are. So I thank you, Kathleen Rogers, for sharing your passion and humanistic principles, for also sharing the challenges and opportunities of climate change and all you and Earth Day does to show us pathways to human and planetary health. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process and your just your lifetime commitment to this Earth. Thank you. But I would be remiss not to congratulate you. And I hope you keep this as part of the broadcast because 
if, if there aren't people like you, if there aren't people in the media, the storytellers, the wise people out there communicating, people like me will not be successful. So thank you for what you do and thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Yan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producers on this episode were Sam Myers and Mia Pardini. One Planet Podcast is produced by Mia Funk. Additional production support by Sophie Garnier. The music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at teamoneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.